HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This program is made possible thanks to the generosity of our listeners. Show your support at heritageradionetwork.org slash donate. This week on Meet in 3, we're embracing the spooky spirit of Halloween, from zombies to witches. We're exploring the odd, the occult, and the taboo in the world of food. There are restaurants with no storefront shrunken down into hundreds of square feet versus thousands of square feet. No servers, no hosts, nobody taking your order. The rats in the sewers are now smelling, all of a sudden, fresh food molecules. And those rats were like, holy cow, follow that scent. Tune in to Meat and 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you listen to podcasts. So you don't shun the devil with your rock and roll load. Knows that country music's gonna save your soul. The devil runs his groove in them rhythm and blues. That's him. It's gonna get you some. Welcome back to the Speakeasy. I'm Souther Teague. And I'm Greg Benson. Greg, my friend, how are you? I'm hanging in there, man. How are you doing? Um, one, I... one step at a time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, one... Yeah, uh, one step at a time. Okay, I'll take it. Uh, yeah, so I'm, will I. I, I I'm, I've got a lot on my plate today, um, and we all have a lot on our, our minds today, but I think we agreed off the air that we're going to try and not talk about the giant elephant and donkey in the room. Um, <laughs> agreed. <laughs> um, but we have other things to talk about, and we have a great guest on today, and we're going we're to talk about some fun stuff. Um, but I will at least kick off the show by mentioning... Tonight, 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 uh, is the friends and family for the new space at Amoria Margo, what we're calling Amoria Margo Reserve. Uh, Fancy. And I am, uh, I'm nervous. Uh, I don't know that I'm 100% prepared to have people back inside. Um, so with the space limitations and coronavirus restrictions, we can have eight people inside at a time. Um, the service is unique. Uh, we're calling it a fine drinking experience. Uh, it's not fine dining, it's fine drinking. Um, for lack of a better word, we're, it's omakase style, or I guess it's prefix, we can call it that. It's a menu that's already set, so you just come in and enjoy this, the situation. It's a two-hour service. Uh, we're serving some light fare uh, and uh, just two seatings tonight. So eight, eight people at 6.30, they're in and out in two hours. we got about a 25-minute space in between there for us to sanitize and reset the space for the following eight people uh and then they can come in and do their thing as well it's going to be unique and interesting it's going to have a lot of educational aspects to the service and this is a plan that we've put together during covid but we want to continue to execute this when covid is over we we find the um the way we've laid out the space and the way that we've created the service is somewhat covid friendly as is and will always be even when we're back to quote unquote 100%, it'll still only maximum, uh, uh, maximum amount of guests will be 20, um, which uh, I think is, is gonna be, it's gonna be unique and interesting and fun. And of course, all those things combined, unique, interesting, and fun equal difficult for me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's not gonna be. Well, I mean, this is like, you know, I, I, I feel like this is one of these things that viewed from the outside, it looks, you know, it's like, I can say like, of course, things are going to go well, you know, it's like, uh, it's like opening night jitters, you know, it's like, I, these are 
it's called friends and family for a reason. Like you were doing this in front of a very forgiving audience who just kind of wants to go there and see what you're up to and kind of get like, you know, the sneak preview of the space and just kind of like, you know, be enjoy um, what you've done and kind of like bask a little bit in the success of putting this together. And, and I'm just sure. going to say it's like a success. It is like personally, like I, I wouldn't be worried about how service is going to go or anything like that. If I were you, I'm just amazed that you were able to build a bar out of what I saw when I was last in there. Like I, I got a little sneak preview, I think a month ago yeah. and it, and it was a construction site. So yeah. just the fact that you've pulled it together in such a short amount of time is yeah. stunning. Thank you. Uh, yeah, and I'll I'll post some pictures on my Instagram soon. We, we have a, um, you know, our official opening will be this weekend, and we have a you know, a, 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 someone has the exclusive story, so I can't post anything out really until then. I could talk about it like we're talking here, but I can't post any photos or anything yet. And you're right, uh, friends and family is people we know and love. So it's 16 people that I know and love that are coming tonight. Um, they're they're not going to be harsh critics, but at the same time, you have that gut feeling, you know, of like. All right, I've been to many of my friends' plays and, uh, you know, have only wanted to escape since the curtain goes up. Uh, I hope people aren't sitting there just thinking, man, two hours, I uh, can't wait till this is over. Um, you know, it's uh, it's still nerve-wracking. And, and we invite friends and family to come, of course, gratis for services tonight or, or, or free to them so that they can... The, the payment that I expect from them is uh, true and honest constructive constructive criticism regarding the the services that we're going to do so uh it doesn't take away frankly that it's nerve-wracking you know i spoke in front of a crowd of uh, over 750 people when i was in the ukraine um that was my largest crowd you know that i've ever had to get up and talk in front of and it was fine i didn't even really think about it frankly but you think to yourself, well, I'm going to be in front of, you know, eight people <laughs> at a time <laughs> that I know and love. You know, it's like it, it puts a, a different layer of pressure on, you know, like I know these people and I know that they're going to be, of course, um, kind and forgiving. But I also want them to be, you know, critical and give me uh, advice on what I'm doing right or doing wrong. And I don't want to I don't want to let them down. I don't want to let myself down. I don't want to let my team down. You know, like this is. But this is it. This is this is you know dress rehearsal, and then you know we got a press event tomorrow, and then we'll do live Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Well, it's uh, also, yeah. I mean, it's also a little bit of a leap because you know this is the first time that you're doing service in the the unprecedentedly shitty times that we have. So, like you know, I'm not I'm not saying you know it'll be fine, even though it will be fine to to minimize the the opening night jitters that you're having because you know there there it's it's there's a lot of unknowns out there of like how are people going to react what's this going to be like is this going to be fun but oh, i mean I, know, i'll mention i'll mention aside i think i mentioned it to you before we got on air today uh i thought to myself 16 people for friends of him that's nothing and several of the first folks that i reached out to to say hey i'd love to invite you this is a free event i want you to see what we're what we're doing and give me some critique they were like, how many people will be in the room? And I was like, eight people maximum plus me. That's really just nine people. Uh, and they're like, yeah, no, too many people. From so 700 people, people overseas to be like no problem to like 16 in a room. It's like, ooh, that's a tall order. Well, what I'm saying, though, Greg, is it's eight people in a room at a time. It's two services, two hours each of eight people. But what I'm True, saying yeah. is I was shocked and not crazy shocked. I understood uh, that people – people still aren't ready to go inside you know here in new york we're only doing 25 percent indoor and many people including myself i haven't been to an indoor service anywhere yet and so i reached out to some friends and and they said uh yeah no no thanks we'll we'll have to pass so consumer confidence is still low there's t tons of hurdles to still overcome it's you know there's so many pieces to the puzzle to consider and think about and it is um it is nerve-wracking well, um, you, let me you know let me be the first one to say good luck. Oh, well, thank you. And uh, <laughs> what's the Leslie it. Nielsen thing? It's like, I just want to let you know, good luck. Yeah, we're all counting wanna... on you. <laughs> Don't let us down. <laughs> uh, but you know what'll calm the nerves and and steal you for anything? A frosty cold knock of vodka. Sounds delightful. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, I have some sitting right here in front of me, courtesy of our guest today. Uh, please welcome Tristan Willie, the co-founder of Good Vodka. Tristan, dude, thank you so much for coming on the show and Tell for this me. thing that is definitely going to soothe my jangled nerves. 
There's, about, there's only a few things you can turn to nowadays, you know? <laughs> there it is, right out of the freezer. So. Kristen, man, really good to hear your voice back on the show. You were on the show way back in episode 88, I think is what you uh, cited. <laughs> I didn't do my own research, but I'll take your word. And that is a long time ago, given that we're in the 300s now. Um, wow. Yeah, so really happy to have you back on the show. It and feels hear, like hear a lifetime ago, so yeah. know, I'm glad to be back. Yeah. Halloween feels like a lifetime ago yeah. at this point. <laughs> Um, what, what, it, what actually is somewhat of a lifetime ago, Tristan, is when we worked side by side at Amore Amargo. Um, yes. My first I mean, real bartending job. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> what a, what a, what a trial by fire. <laughs> Truly. God, I miss that bar so much. I, I honestly, fondest bartending memories have to come out of Amore Amargo. I, that, I was thrown under the bus there and right into it with, you know, me and Chris Elford at the time. And I yep. still, I, I miss those evenings. Like, they are my most fun, most favorite bartending evenings. Yeah, so that's back in the days when we, yeah, that's back in the days when we kept the lights really low and we played a lot of punk rock music and we were just jamming out bitter drinks and uh, that was a fun. That was a fun phase for Amori Margo. As you know, I miss it too, and I'm missing it especially during this time because we haven't had you know to, the ability to do indoor service uh, since March. Um, so yeah. it seems like it's so far in a distant memory for me as well. Um, yeah. But man, yeah, uh, talk a little bit about your uh, your beginnings, uh, and then we'll get up to speed on some good vodka. Yeah, definitely. You know, I. Uh... You know, I've been in booze, you know, in in New York City. I'm in Northern California now, temporarily, but uh, uh, in the city since about 2010, when I you know started on as uh, the general manager at Criff Dogs and PDT, which was my first real job in the city. I fell flat on my face into that, and you know, learned how to sling sling both hot dogs and watch the magic that was Jimmy Han and their team kind of do booze in a way that I didn't even know existed. And it launched me into booze, and I, I, uh, I knew then I had to figure it out from the ground up. So I started distilling at Kings County, uh, making bourbon and also, brandies uh, yeah. and moonshine. Yeah, yeah. Also, also with Chris Elford, I remember that back when you just had those. Mm-hmm. What was it five little? Were they one gallon stills? They were. Hey, hey, they were five gallon stills. You know? Oh, there were there were five five <laughs> gallon. Yeah, five uh, five gallon this, stills. But they had to be tended right. 24 hours a day to get any volume out of them, right? Uh, absolutely. I mean, that was it was it started in a loft in Bushwick yep. above a tie factory, uh, which yeah. we ruined many, many ties. Uh, and <laughs> it was, you know, it was a little learning laboratory. We came on board, me and my current co-founder at Good Vodka, you know, started there together. And then Chris came on board and it was just a bunch of, bunch of guys trying to figure it out. And we used these little hobby stills to just crank out as much moonshine as we could. And then we got that into barrels finally and tried to see what happened then. And then we, you know, anything we could throw into these little buckets on hot plates, we would. And just try and figure it out. You know, lo and behold, now they're in the Navy Yard and they're cranking out beautiful whiskey. But back sure, then it was... What an incubator. Yeah, what an incubator that place was. You and your partner came out of there. Chris Elford came out of there. He's now opening a brewery out, out west. Um, of course, oh, yeah. Colin, who who still runs the joint. Nicole Austin ended up working there. She's now a lauded and extremely well-known distiller, cranking out delicious booze for Dickel. Like that little yeah. project. I remember being in that space above the tie factory. It was, you know, no romanticism whatsoever. It was just a room with these five little stills that had to have someone caring for them 24 hours a day to crank out enough volume to keep the place al- alive, right? Oh, yeah, totally. Well, there's a lot to be said about being in a situation that isn't a a huge factory already made, isn't a fine oiled machine, and it let us just get our hands into the booze, quite literally. You know, I know there were days there where we were fishing around, you know, in barrels trying to figure out what was burning, and then, you know, (laughs) trying to see if we could use that then. But, you know, we're, it, it leaves you alone in the room to try and understand what you're doing from the very very basic building blocks and we all fell in love with that level of operation everything i did on any given day seemed to make a huge difference and i got to sit back and see what did i do why did it happen what what was it going to make and i don't think there are many opportunities when you get to be on that very very basic level of creating something and it it was it's formative to all of us you know, just to be able to work so intimately with the very, I mean, anywhere from the corn to these little boiling pots. 
Yeah, I mean, I feel like you're, the whole team in that situation is someone in beginner mind, you know, or infant mind every single day. Every, everything you see, touch, and do is brand new, and you have to catalog those things and, and understand what's going on. Yeah, and it was nice, and it was a good situation. It was one of those things where, you know, with Colin, who was the owner, um, starting it up, he was so forgiving, and we knew it was that. We knew it was a laboratory to see if we could do it, to see what we could do and how to do it. And so if anything just kind of fell off the rails, you know, we we learned from it and no one felt like it was the end of the world or, you know, a complete failure. It was just another step in production. And I think they've put all that knowledge to really amazing use as in we let them figure everything out and be okay with variety. And it's yeah. been, it's pretty cool. It was, it was an amazing, amazing little room. Yeah, and then as you said, they moved. They've become much larger. They're now award-winning uh, line of spirits, and and coming right out of Brooklyn, and it's pretty fucking awesome. Now yeah. you're in that lab, and somehow you moved into a kind of another lab with a, 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 another science nerd genius that we all know and love, Dave <laughs> Arnold, uh, uh, who has a show here on Heritage Radio Network called Cooking Issues. You should tune into. Um, how did you jump from distilling to running the show at Booker and Dax with Dave? I, <laughs> that was a change. Um, I knew that I wanted to be in the bar side of things as well. I mean, I love producing a product. Producing bourbon was incredible. Uh, but I wanted to kind of span that spectrum and be uh, consumer facing. You know, I love the aspects of guest relations and being a bartender. Having that show every night is is important. And uh, I, I was hosting the then beverage director of Momofuku on a tour and ultimately David Chang himself uh, and just kind of got them hooked on the process that we were doing in Kings County. And he called me and said, I want to work with you. I want to do something. Can you create a tasting for me tonight? Uh, I'm going on Jimmy Fallon and I need bourbon Rex to go with my food. And I was nobody. I was literally an intern distiller and new to New York still, basically. And he was like, no, no, just just write them down, send them in and and we'll we'll take them on Fallon. And I said, I'll, I'll do it. I'll just what whatever. I'm going to make this up. I, I know enough to do this. I will. I'll do it. And he, he went on the show that night and everything went off with a bang. And then he called me the next day. and was like, hey, let's let's do something. And um, he introduced me to David Arnold, you know, Dave, and uh, the the mad scientist that he is. And they said, you know, we're not ready yet, but we want to we want to make a bar. We want to showcase what Dave can do in real world situations with drinking and eating. And I think that you would be the link to do that. And I had no idea what I was doing and I had never done anything like that before. And I said, okay, so then we just dove in. And we opened Booker and Dax. Uh, it was, Souther, you know this quite intimately. Uh, it was Yeah, I was, an I was amazing on the opening team time. there. Yeah. yeah. Um, it was an incredible experience, an extremely daunting and challenging experience, but really something quite special, if I can say so. Um, the team we had there and the opportunities we had and the tools we had at our disposal were unparalleled at the time and really just so fun i just it was such a crazy space and so fun but we did that so yeah um, yeah i mean i feel like uh you know the, the old the old saw of uh um you know you were just lucky well the, the harder you work the luckier you get seems like you lucked into pdt you lucked into amori margo and then uh, uh king's county and then book index but no you were doing the legwork you were paying attention you were taking opportunities as they came to you you were seizing them and not fa- you know facing away from them so it seems all logical to me and, and of course that led to you that led to you being named uh, Zagat's 30 under 30 you got Eater's National Bartender of the Year um, and you now continue to tour around and do educational events and all that curiosity and all those skills that you gathered and honed uh, up to this point is what I'm sure brought you to good vodka and when we come right back from here from our sponsors, we're going to talk to you about what good vodka is and what it means to you. So we'll be right back. All of us at HRN have been keeping busy, despite working and recording from home. This fall, we're proud to announce new shows on the network that each bring important 
and enlightening stories to listeners around the world. While the world is in turmoil and the future of our country is uncertain, there are certain constants that help keep us going. For us, food and storytelling are essential. While we can't come together in person, food podcasts from HRN provide a virtual table we can all gather around. Bringing exceptional stories to your ears and keeping you informed on the ever-changing political and environmental issues of our time is integral to our mission. At a time when the world around us is rapidly changing, HRN is committed to being here for our listening community, and we need you to be here for us. Join our table and help ensure the future of food radio by becoming a member of HRN. Go to heritageradionetwork.org donate to make a contribution. Check out the latest additions to our lineup while you're there. You can see all of our series at heritageradionetwork.org slash new show. And we are back. You are listening to The Speakeasy on Heritage Radio Network. Uh, talking with us today, we have Tristan Willie from Good Vodka, which we just sort of started talking about on uh, right before the break here. So Good Vodka, you went from working in a bar to working in a distillery to working in a bar. And then your path sort of brought you back to uh, where you are now to make this this wonderful frosty bottle that I have in front of me. So talk to me about where the germ of this idea came from, where your next sort of quantum leap in your career came from to, to land you to land where you are and land this bottle in front of me right now. <laughs> it is one of those things. I, uh, I was starting on a new bar program for uh, I was just kind of consulting on it. And we wanted to put in uh, a good coffee program. And I just didn't have any coffee experience. And I needed, you know, one of the things I learned from Booker and Dax is I, I mean, to do this something seems well. To be your, this um, seems to be your trail. You go into things where you have no experience. <laughs> yeah, I and just then, say and yes, then you, you know. And then, and then you somehow, and then you somehow dominate. <laughs> well, if you, you know, I just feel like if you go into a situation, I don't have the experience for it, but you're willing to do the legwork, it means I get to learn something new. Uh, I get to apply it to something I'm doing, which is the way you learn anything best, I feel like. And then and then you get to run with it, you know? And it's not about knowing everything ahead of time because if I knew everything already, you'd just, where would you go from there? So I just say, we're going to learn. I'm willing to do the work and we'll, we'll put it to use as it goes and there's going to be some missteps, but, you know, then you learn more. So, yeah, Tristan, absolutely. Willie, yeah. Tristan, Tristan Willie, a guy who's, how tall are you again? Six, five? Six, six, yeah. Six six, a guy who's six six says it's just about legwork. Okay, so you got the, you got the legs. <laughs> you got you got those legs. Uh, and you know, I, so you're yeah. working with coffee. Put so you're, you're working so with coffee. So I'm doing this. I'm you're... like, I don't know anything about coffee. I don't know how to pull a shot of espresso. I like coffee. I drink a lot of coffee, but that's basically where my knowledge stops. So if I'm going to serve this to somebody. I need to get it together. I need to be able to talk to them as somebody who knows what they're talking about and not just somebody who says, I want you to purchase this from me without me knowing what I'm giving you. So we, uh, I, I arranged to go down to a coffee farm in Guatemala and uh, we just dive in and we get there and I realized very quickly that coffee comes from a fruit, which may seem obvious to everybody in the coffee industry, but I I didn't know that the coffee bean was the center of a huge cherry. I, I don't know what I thought it came from, but I, it was certainly not a tree full of ripe cherries. So I, upon this, um, and going around these coffee farms, you realize that they produce this beautiful ripe fruit, and the only focus of their industry is the bean inside. So they are taking all the coffee beans and meticulous, meticulously caring for them. And they're just chucking these beautiful ripe cherries into massive piles all over these farms to literally rot. And as a distiller, a distiller who's tried so desperately to harness sugar in any way to make alcohol, because that is what you need, 
uh, I was standing here in these farms looking at mountains of perfectly just so cared for fruit, uh, you know, piles of fruit, rot, just, just dissolve into nothing. They get, they get pushed into streams, they get left in landfills, and they just are a burden on the whole farm. And it just, it honestly, it just blew my mind. I was nothing but excited and in that very instant pivoted everything I was doing to figuring out how to put these cherries to work. So you're telling me, and I remember a couple of years uh-huh. ago, actually, when you were getting this off the ground, you showed me some photos of, of exactly what you just described, these kind of piles of discarded fruit. And I, I get it, man. I get that your 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 history up to this moment, uh, or that moment, rather, has you in a place where you're like, this is usable product. What shocks me, I think, is no one on these coffee fields had that same idea. Was this something anyone was doing, even just for home use? Were they taking this fruit and fermenting it and Not distilling it? or? Wow. None, not that at all. And seems... that, it was crazy, you know, and I couldn't, Souther, you're asking the same question that we asked ourselves so many times. We, the entire life of this project was my partner and I looking at that same question and saying, just waiting, just waiting every single day for somebody to have done it, to have, to be using it for this already, for there to be a history of this. Uh, and there just, there just isn't. There's just the focus has been so heavily on getting such high quality coffee or efficient coffee out into the world because that is the commodity that it, this has just lurked in the background, kind of untended for so long. Yeah, just just been yeah. totally, totally overlooked. And I, and I feel like, you know, in a way it's it's this very sort of tunnel vision, like, you know, a, um, situational blindness that you have if you are a, a coffee grower to like, you know, if your focus is what's inside, then the, the stuff around it is really just an obstacle, you know, and it takes uh, an, an outside the box thinker like someone who say has started about five different careers not knowing <laughs> the first thing about what they were doing on day one and just jumped in to look at this problem and say like there is a surplus here and we need to harness it so so that's what you do you get the company together and and what where do you even begin with this problem you know where do you did you just go to the farmer and just say hey we'll we'll take that pile of crap that you threw out in the back or like really, well, how does I, this begin i really hope tristan that you not only said we'll take it but you said you know if you'll pay us we'll haul all this old fruit away <laughs> no no you know it was there was a lot there there was a it was a weird situation you know i didn't when this project started i literally had no idea where it was going I knew its potential and I didn't know where to aim that yet. I didn't know if we were going to start harvesting the fruit for them. I didn't know if we were going to keep it. I didn't know if I was going to make a brandy on site at the coffee farms. Um, And that formed up as we went along, you know, just that eventually the vodka would come from all of this. But we didn't know. I didn't know what to do with it. So I I started to research about what was happening with this stuff, which was, you know, there there was a small push by a couple of tiny companies to try and utilize some of it. So there's a there's a coffee flour, like a baking flour that's produced from it. Uh, the problem is it's very expensive to make and it's so niche. It makes all the, you know, the breads and pastries taste kind of like this fruit and it wasn't usable at the at a large way. And there was some people utilize it as fertilizer, but the process to make it into a fertilizer is a huge hurdle. And that's something we were cognizant of. I'll come back to in a little bit because, you know, one of the major focuses is the farm and the farmer. Um, so I just started down the road and said, uh, what, how much of this do we have and where is it going now? And the answer came back unequivocally is going into drainage um, and that there was so much of it that we couldn't actually affect a dent into this unless we were going to do something big. Um, there are, there's five times as much cherry as there is bean. So the coffee, you know, commodity being enormous worldwide purchased every continent, um, is a huge thing. And this, these cherries are five times the size of that. So once we start to figure out that the, the potential there was vastly bigger than what we had anticipated, my craft brandy idea kind of fell to the wayside and realized we could put a lot of this to work. And the way to put it to work was to make something that 
already had a large base of consumption, which was vodka. Not something that I started out loving, not something that I used a lot, um, but the world drinks it and I could make it from a way, from something that needed to be put to work. So I did. I went to a coffee farmer and all over, we, we flew over and I should say my partner in this is Mark Byrne, who has been here along for the whole ride. And uh, we, we've done a lot of traveling together and we just went. We went to you know Guatemala and Costa Rica and we landed in Colombia and said, you know, and we finally landed on a farm and was able to make a connection and we just started. We started distilling it ourselves. We flew a hobby still down to uh, down to Colombia on the northern coast. We were based in uh, Santa Marta. It's a cool little place where these huge mountains hit the Caribbean Ocean. Uh, and we got an Airbnb and we distilled from the kitchen everything we could. And we... <laughs> Right, so you're probably, we, having, you're probably having these crazy flashbacks of being above the Thai store. <laughs> literally, still. same still, same situation. We, we cut out the power on whole city blocks on accident. We were hiding inside because obviously we didn't know anything about the local area and what, you know, and how to, how to do this legally. So we're just like, we just need to test. We just need to test. And everything kept coming back that we could do this. And so we ended up at that point realizing that this was such a big project and that we didn't know how to necessarily interact with the farmers. We didn't know how to interact with it as a commodity. And we brought, we started to get some help from the outside. Um, we partnered with the National Coffee Federation of Colombia, uh, which is a nonprofit that works, it's government funded, it works on behalf of coffee farmers. And we said, how do we do this correctly? And they've along the way help set us up with the systems to communicate to farmers that yes we do want to actually pay you for your trash we we need this <laughs> in a certain way and we're not here to try and rip you off and we actually want to work on your behalf and get this stuff that's ruining your land off of it um, and we want to give you revenue for that and we and they've been able to help us with that and create systems for that along the way so Short story to shorten the story, and I'm sorry I'm running on here, but it um we don't distill. <laughs> this is on this is radio. If we, if we sit, yeah, this is radio. Yeah. If we sit here quietly, we lose we lose listeners. Um. <laughs> Fair. Um, we uh, I I just have, you know it's I'm so excited to finally talk about all this stuff. It's been such a long project, and to see it in the world, I can get a little bit carried away. But uh, I uh, we don't distill down there we found out that the best way to do it is to literally harness these cherries as something that we can make usable for a longer period of time. So we work with the farmers to make a syrup on, on site and we import the syrup to distill in New York state at Finger Lake system. Fascinating. And you know, it, by developing that process, we were able to collect more of this stuff and we are able to, hold it for a long time and because of the coffee region being so enormous around the globe we can collect it from anywhere um and put it to use in the way we want to use it here in the states Tristan, what I, was your let me let me go first greg if you don't mind you. what was your what was your first impulse was your first impulse i want to use a thing that's not being used or was your first impulse i want to make a thing that ha that isn't made um my, that makes, that's that makes a, that's sense. a really good question. And they weren't far off. They were pretty simultaneous because I am really, you know, making something is one of the greatest joys. I, I, honestly, I learned that at Kings County when you get to take nothing and turn it into something that somebody gets to enjoy and consume and interact with. Is there something extremely satisfying about that? But no, no, ultimately it was about solving the problem of the coffee cherries. Um, I, I, had, I had a tool to solve that problem and I felt like I could apply it. I, I think that I didn't know what, how to do it or what the end goal would be, what it would mean for the farmers or for myself, but I knew that there was something sitting there that was a problem and I had at least a mechanism to run it through. So, so honestly, it sounds like sustainability was your, your primary goal. You wanted to it, use a thing that, that wasn't being used. Yeah, yeah, that was the first inclination. 
And that seems to be a core value with the company still, right? It really is. I mean, that's something I'd love to talk about because I real I really feel like sustainability is so, so important. And, you know, we're dealing with climate change and we're dealing with overconsumption and overproducing of just so many things. And I I I see our conversations starting to move towards sustainability and I see bar owners asking the right questions and I don't see a, a real response coming from the producers. Um, my partner, Mark, who I should say, you know, he, he started the distillery and he was an editor at GQ for a long time uh, and works in narrative and he consults for what well, used to consult for uh, basically a brand generator for the spirits industry. And he's worked on hundreds and hundreds of the most famous brands you could ever fathom. He's He creates their brand voice and identity. And he was sitting there having these huge brands come up to him and say, we need to look more sustainable. That's mm. what the consumer wants. How can we appear to be more sustainable? What is the language that we can apply to make us look like we hear you, but they're not making an actual change. They're just making a new voice for themselves. And it was driving him nuts. And he brought that to me and, you know, and knew I was working on this. And I knew what he did. And he brought that concern to me. And I said, we don't have to do that. We have something in front of us where we can actually, from the very first step at the farmer, all the way through the entire chain or chain of supply and all the way to the bars, create something that we don't have to create a voice for. It speaks volumes about itself. And so this it was kind of a gift to both of us to work on a project where it was so clearly sustainable from every angle and we could just say it because it's not happening other places. So, and I don't want to say that we're perfect, and this is a brand new project, and I, there are hurdles in creating a sustainable pro- product that you know you're going to face, but you kind of don't believe they're going to be that hard to get over, but they are. There are problems with manufacturing and shipping and basically just systemic problems all the way through the the production process of any kind of product that are almost impossible to overcome but we're doing the as much as we can along the way to tackle that so sustainability from start to finish is really our goal and getting it to people as our you know is the side-by-side value of the company does, yeah, does that absolutely. make sense no yeah. no it, it, it makes perfect yeah. sense and it's one of these things it sounds like for your partner it's it, to bring it back to the the sort of theater geek conversation we were having at the beginning i always i love it when i go to a friend's show and tell them they did a good job and i don't have to lie to them like that's the best feeling in the world (laughs) to say you did a good job and actually mean it like and and i'm sure that feels amazing for you and for for your partner in this to be able to say no this really does make a difference it really does i mean i'm looking here at the at the bottle what's the um said something here about like it 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 because you're not producing from a feel from a like monoculture specific thing just for this it saves a huge amount of water and i don't know i i am i think that people need to walk around all the time just having their minds blown by the fact that it costs more to get beef from a cow that was raised closer to where you live most of the time, depending on where you are in America, than from someplace hundreds of miles away. That's crazy. And and the system is built almost in a way uh, to encourage waste. You know, I'm sure these farmers are thrilled that they're able to turn something that they were throwing away into an extra source of revenue because that was the 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 thing that you know they they just had to that was just the business model you got to get the coffee out as fast as possible and if you have to throw something away you got to throw something away you know yeah that's but, just part of it yeah, that's I mean, just literally yeah. part of it you know you take that for granted it's just that's what we do with that stuff and they've been trained into that and the focus is on the coffee bean and on nothing else and you're exactly right they just didn't question that and 
it's really ah, man i'm just i using a byproduct has really opened my eyes to just the opportunity that is around us and the fact that people you know and i don't say not people people want this these changes to occur i think the consumer wants this but the industry that's already established is just seems to be too much to break the mold that they are unquestioning of because of profits and because of the industries that surround their products to to consider and i'm it's just such a bummer <laughs> I just, it is I, yeah I and it's it. one of these yeah. It's one of these crazy things where once you start looking under the hood at, you know, where where our coffee comes from, where our meat comes from, where our fruit comes from, where our, you know, whiskey comes from, you see just how much I guess you 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 see how stuff that was originally like, you know, go to go back to the example of whiskey and and vodka and any distilled spirit, it was originally a sustainable thing because you're grain would go bad your beer would go bad but if you still it down into whiskey that's good for the next 40 years so it was originally a sustainable process but we've just moved and gotten so used to being able to get anything from any corner of the world at a supermarket within walking distance that you know it's 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 just nuts to watch how much stuff gets thrown away sometimes you know yeah, I mean, that was Mark's uh, big drive in a lot of our labeling that we did. We have a little neck tag on the top of the bottle, and he's like, I just really want people to know that this comes from a place, that too often spirits don't get associated with being a, from a farm, from a location. It's not magically here. It came from something, and it came from a farming industry and a shipping industry, and I'd like to be able to identify that and and tie this bottle back to something that's happening very far away from here that is equally as big in the process as any other part of this and so he he very specifically and this was a you know a deal breaker for me he's like we have to have this is i want to tell whoever buys this bottle where it comes from and when it was made and what's in it and so you you can see right along the top that it was made from i think this batch is from caldas in colombia and when it was harvested. And, you know, it was important to actually connect people to the whole process. Yeah, I'm, I'm, into a, it. I'm, a, I'm a huge fan of that. You know, I used to teach butchery at the New England Culinary Institute in my former life. Uh, and, you know, uh, I really do, it's hyperbole, of course, but I really do think that the typical American consumer uh, walks back to the back side of the grocery store and sees all those pieces of meat that are either packaged or maybe you know hopefully it's fewer and fewer but hopefully there's an actual butcher there and some pieces of meat that can be cut for them but they think meat comes from back there like that's as far as they know they don't they don't go back in their mind to the farm uh, and the animal they just think well that that's where meat comes from they pull up to the drive-through and they stretch their hand out and grab a bag and they think that hamburgers come from in there you know, uh, so yeah, yeah, connecting people back to stuff is really important, and it, and it gives people it, it creates value on things uh, that's beyond the value of the product itself. It, it gives value, and I think in turn, when it's consumed, uh, it it brings a greater sense of satisfaction and value to the consumer. So yeah, I really definitely. love that. Let, let's and talk a little bit. Yeah. yeah, go ahead. Oh, I was just saying, and and it brings value to the to the end game too. A cocktail, it get, it equips a bartender with pride about what he's doing or she's doing and and how you know what's in their hand not vodkas in particular have never had a story or a reason other than luxury to be sold so i really just think that equipping somebody with something to say i chose this for a reason because i have the information because there's a reason for it to exist and i can communicate that to you elevates joy of that drink or that situation so much so yeah, it spans the spectrum yeah um tristan let's talk a little bit about um launching a brand during a pandemic mm-hmm. <laughs> it's sounds really easy. fun <laughs> sounds <laughs> it sounds fun it sounds like a, it was just a blast uh, yeah yeah it's uh you know you have all these things we've been working on this project for seven years and you know, after being you know, a bar manager or, or a, even a consumer of spirits and that stuff, you have this you have this huge buildup, and you're like, I've been working on this thing that I've been putting together, and when the day comes, we're gonna have these parties, and we're gonna have cocktails with friends, and we're gonna do 
all the things that you get so geared up to do, and then you, a pandemic comes in, <laughs> and that the parties. It's not even the parties that go out the window that's so sad. It's just, I, we almost didn't launch, and you know, just kind of out of respect for what was happening to our peers in the bar industry and in the restaurant industry, and and a lot of the social climate that was happening. We didn't want to take any kind of airspace away from that, which is so important. And it just kind of started to drag on and get such a bummer. And Mark and I were sitting there going, we're sitting on something that can be a positive in a way, in some, in a way that not many things can right now. And it's just literally sitting in a warehouse. So let's maybe just feed it in to, to get it out there just a little bit. We won't make a fuss we won't do any big push we'll just maybe start to sow the seeds of look we can do something that's good there's something that has a strong backbone to it there's something that we're going to do so that we can move the world in a better direction and so we did we started to trickle it out to friends and just the very close bars that we've worked at or are consuming at and and release it into the market but it's been weird, you know, it's it's so hard approaching your your accounts and your and asking them, do you have the runway to even bring on a bottle right now, a new product? And can I ask that of you? Because I know right now you're dealing with other existential crisis. And I it's it's been such a delicate thing to to be cognizant of what they're going through and at the same time really needing to start this process on our end and everyone's been enthusiastic but so many people have so many tied hands right now that it's been a very slow moving beast so yeah yeah you know we even we launched our instagram account to try and just fill it out a little bit so that someday we can kick straight into you know full gear but even then, I'm like, I don't want to flood. There's so many important things happening. And we're, we're not talking about last night. And we're not talking about, you know, <laughs> that. It's too fresh and too raw. Um, but, you know, there are more. There are some really important things happening in the world that you don't want to cover up with. Isn't vodka fun? You know? And so it's been, it's been, a, it's been a challenge. But I think, well, I think things are cruising along. Yeah, well, you know, uh, it's great to have reverence and respect and all those things. And I think you've proven your track record proves that you have all, all that in your toolkit already. Um, but the, the fact of the matter is life must plot along and you got to get your product out there. So to that end, um, where are you at currently and how can the listener uh, look into you? Uh, what's your Instagram handle? Like, let them, let them know how they can connect. Yep, uh, at good.vodka. Uh, is the brand Instagram ha handle. We are live with the website. It's goodvodka.com. Uh, it's, it's out there in a few places. It can be shipped anywhere in the United States from upstream wine in, uh, in upstate. Uh, there's Duke's Liquor Box in Brooklyn, and there is Flaskin Field in Los Angeles right now, also carrying it and doing some cool things with it. And then we're slowly bringing on some other, you know, bars and friend shops and that kind of stuff throughout uh hunky dory landa you know your favorite little cocktail bars long island bar they're all serving up martinis with it and other good things uh it's all on the website if you want to log on to goodvodka.com there's a list of current accounts it's just a handful but we're updating them all the time um and we hope to just kind of slowly creep out there so people can start enjoying this stuff well, I, I love the product. I love that you put so much legwork into it, seven years worth, uh, uh, and it's, you know, it's finally come to fruition. I'm super proud to know you and, and call you a friend, and, uh, you know, I'm wishing you all the best, uh, and, and yeah, I think this is this is going to be great, and I love, honestly, I love the name, Good Vodka. Uh, it's kind of, you know, when I had Koo, my bar that gave all of its uh, uh, money to charities, you know, we said, do good while being bad, right? So this vodka... To drink it alone is to do something good, to do something sustainable and to do something uh, uh, good. So I like it. I like it a lot. And I really appreciate you taking time out to be on the show today, bud. No, Sada, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. And good luck on your friends and family. It will be wonderful. 
Yeah, it's. I know it's a weird climate, but I am so excited for it. Well, we'll have to get you in uh, when you know travel is safe and you can come back to New York and, and check it out. Um, and it'll be anyway. nice not to lie to you when we tell you it was a good time. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah. Thanks. Uh, Greg, I got nothing else. If you want to take us out, I'm done. All right. Well, actually, I, I do have one last question that I've just been wondering oh. this entire time. These cherries, are they actually, like, are they good? Do they taste good? Clearly, the, the vodka that it's made from them is good. It says so right here on the bottle. And, you know, <laughs> I can uh, I can personally attest that, yes, it is. But are how do they, what is the flavor like? Are they tasty? Like, what's up with that? Yeah. Okay. So, they're... They're interesting. They're delicious. They're rich in sugar, um, but they're also highly fibrous. So if you were to pop them, like one in your mouth, you could eat it, but it would be very chewy and grainy. Mm. Uh, so it's not, you know, cherry's a little bit of a misnomer. It's not like popping in something like out of a basket in the grocery store, but it's just, I mean, it's a big, ripe red cherry that has a peppery flavor to it and a little vanilla flavor and it's packed with sugar so it's just yes it is delicious and honestly you can kind of taste it in the vodka not that our vodka has a flavor because it's not and fyi there's no caffeine in it um that's a question i keep getting yeah that's that's good to know yeah (laughs) yeah and it doesn't taste like coffee but it's just they're really neat kind of sweet peppery flavored cherries Interesting. Yeah. Well, well, it makes a hell of a vodka. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, guys. I, I can't. I can't speak for the the cherry itself, hey, but every time you drink a cocktail with it, you're actually reducing the uh, carbon emissions. So you know you're actively fighting climate change right now by having a cocktail or a sip of vodka. So I'm not going to call myself more. a hero, but you can if you want to. <laughs> <laughs> uh. Well, on that uh, note, guys, this has been a great episode. Thanks again, Tristan Willie, for joining us from Good Vodka. Go to good.vodka uh, on Instagram. Go to goodvodka.com to get more information about where you can get a hold of this stellar product that's been in the work for seven years from a great friend uh, and a true uh, entrepreneurial spirit. Um, that's it for this week's Speakeasy. Cheers, guys. Thanks so much. Cheers. Thanks, guys. So you don't shun the devil with your rock and roll load. Knows that country music's gonna save your soul. The devil runs his groove in that rhythm and blues that sound. It's gonna get you The Speakeasy is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com forward slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows that you like. Tell your friends. And please, Join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.